Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Elix Ventures, a San Francisco based venture fund that invests in early stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. We're thrilled to welcome Ben Oaks and Dave Savage, co-founders of Scribe Therapeutics, the show today. Thank you once again for joining us to help host this episode. I'm joined with my colleague, Chris Godbon. Let's kick things off, Scribe team. Can you share a brief intro with us? Ben, can you start? Thanks for so much for the invite. I know both Dave and I are excited to be here today. Uh, I grew up in Jersey, and I think like many folks in this field, I thought I wanted to be the, the classic MD, PhD starting out. What happened to me, I think, is also something that happens to many folks in this field. I, I worked in a hospital, actually, during college up in rural Maine. And I quickly realized that medicine was not, m- at least my way, w- to quickly get at treating the underlying causes. So I then went from, from that idea specifically to, to more looking at how I could do that. And that's how I ended up in zinc finger nuclease engineering, which is version zero, if you will, of genome editing technologies. So I, I did zinc finger nucleus engineering, zinc finger transcription factor engineering at Princeton for about two years when Jennifer demonstrated to the world, you know, and her colleagues demonstrated to the world how to specify DNA with an RNA in 2012. And I was sold. I'm not sure <laughs> how many folks listening to this are familiar with what zinc finger nucleus engineering requires, basically building billions of molecules and then selecting from that a single molecule or a set of single molecules, essentially that could bind three base pairs. And then repeating that again and again until you get 18 base pairs of specificity. So I, I burnt the midnight oil essentially trying to accomplish that for um, two years. And, and when Jennifer came around and showed us how to do that with an RNA, I came out to UC Berkeley at that point in time, specifically to work with Dave, as well as Jennifer, both co-founded Scribe with me basically three and a half years later. So after that, it's kind of history. Fantastic. Thanks for the background, Ben, and appreciate joining us once again. Dave, can you share the same? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks th- again. Thanks, guys, for the invitation to, to come and chat. It's fun to, to have a stimulated conversation. I'm an associate professor at, at UC Berkeley in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. Long before, I mean, deep, deep background, like like Ben, I grew up in rural Iowa, kind of in the middle of nowhere. But both my parents were in, in medicine. And my dad, he was a doctor, but he used that to really support his farming habits. Since that we, we had had a family farm, it's been in the family for 150 years or so. Every weekend we were out there doing stuff on it. And I think from that, I, I've always had a sort of a practical approach to the more applied side of things. I, I've always loved basic science, but also valued the translational 
And over the years, in terms of my journey, I was attracted to actually a variety of sort of related fields in chemistry and biology, dabbled a little bit in computer science too, and just kind of put one foot in front of the other and ultimately ended up as a PhD student in biophysics, studied protein structure. One of the things that, that I kind of value is also focusing not so much on the technique, but more focused on the questions. And over the years, kind of moved into more, more biological questions, moving away from biophysics in, into ultimately the biochemistry and protein engineering that my lab does today. I've had the benefit of working with a lot of outstanding students and Ben, of course, is among them. And I, I still remember the day, actually, it was before Ben even showed up at Berkeley. It was during interview weekend. We had this, this conversation where we were, I think we were totally in sync with one another in terms of we kind of got effectively what Scribe is even today. There's sort of an understanding between, the, the, between us both about how to build molecules and you know, sort of the rest is history. You know, Ben, ben joined Indeed. the lab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say if if I if I remember correctly, that was on a particular person's couch. Yeah, that's that right. Couch? It was actually yeah. it was at the Doudna Kate household. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was at Jennifer's house by the fireplace in the kitchen. <laughs> yep, and uh, and we we basically laid the plans right there. Actually, you know, I think honestly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Gotta so love that's, it. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both for once again for joining us. And one fun question to kick things off before we hop in today's episode, to maybe help lay some context for how you think about what is ahead the future of genetic engineering. The question comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted but the future can be invented. So can you share with us at Scribe, what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. What does it mean to us? I think like this right here is what is so beautiful, I think about this age in biology, um, is that we actually, and I don't even know if we were there, you know, a decade ago, but today between our ability to both read and write DNA at scale, between the principles of synthetic biology continuing to be uncovered and really thought of specifically as an engineerable style of science, if you will. I, I think what inventing the future means to us or, or what it is, what is possible now is that every time we envision something, we can actually we, we now have the capabilities, like I said, between reading and writing DNA, being able to do assays in large pools, being able to select from those assays to actually be successful at creating new things. And what's so amazing, I think, is throughout my time in Dave and Jennifer's lab during my PhD, throughout my time running a small lab at UC Berkeley and then at Scribe, we have actually been able to lay out a goal prior to physically making a new molecule, but lay out a goal, lay out a, a platonic ideal, if you will, of a new molecule, and then build a set of techniques and methodologies that would enable us to build these massive libraries to screen and select from them and actually accomplish that goal. I actually have been, and this is a little bit unfair, I think, to many of the deep biologists out there, but I have been fortunate enough to be able to engineer a new system that we set out to engineer. And that is what I think inventing the future means to us. Applying all of these principles, sitting at this nexus between all of these different techniques that have been created now in biology allows us to truly take 
an intentional and design-based philosophy and kind of build towards it. It's pretty fun, I guess is what I would say. And what it, and what it enables, right? And what it enables is always being able to take this design-based philosophy and having that, having the outcome you want. Is it always a straight road? No, but at least so far, it's been successful. Fantastic. I think that sets some some great fun context, Ben, to uh, jump into our first topic here. I'll pass it off to Chris to share more about engineering the future of genetic medicine. For years, you've both been at the cutting edge of genetic engineering. Dave, we'd love to hear, how do you think about engineering the future of genetic medicine? Yeah, so I think everything changed in, in 2012 when the Genic et al. paper came out. Because I think the discovery of how CRISPR-Cas effectors actually work led to this ability to bring anything to the genome. And that provides the way to target. And we know now from all of the work that's done both in industry and academia, that that scaffold is going to be used off the shelf. At places like Scribe, we'll be able to rebuild and refactor that scaffold with all sorts of new activity and to really like domesticate things from nature. So obviously that's like one of the core principles. Second thing is how you give that targeted activity to the right cell at the right time, particularly obviously for in vivo uh, applications. So delivery is a huge problem. And you've seen that in terms of investments in in AAV companies and the, the start of those AAV therapies starting to trickle out. Still a lot of challenges to solve there too, but I, th- I think we have you know, a roadmap to, to how to do that. In, in my mind, really, the, the critical pieces after we're able to, to build these things and deliver them is actually really the, the deep biology. What does the human genetic landscape look like? We'll see a first wave of therapies that target obvious things. But discovering those more subtle things, you know, through, through again, deep biology and also advances in metrology, advances in measuring to identify, you know, who is the right patient for a particular uh, type of therapy is going to be critical. And, and sort of in a related, related way, I think in the future is accessibility. How do we create the right therapies that can be produced at scale and the you know, pricing structures or reasons that the whole world benefits? Uh, and I think you know, that's one of the good things, I think, from the pandemic that we've seen, just to, to touch on that briefly, is that, yes, on one hand, there's been a delay in vaccines across the whole world. But on the other hand, nearly half the world as of today, I think I just said on the times has been vaccinated about 50% of the population. We've crossed that critical threshold. That means almost half the world has had gene therapy at this point, which is a crazy thing to think about two years ago. And so hopefully that accessibility opens up to the rest of the world. Thank you, Dave, for that great perspective. And Ben, Dave's already started to allude to this, but walk us through the last 10 years. How has genetic medicine developed and what has CRISPR's impact in the field been? Yeah, I'll speak more specifically to CRISPR and genome editing in particular, because compared to AAV gene delivery, where we've been focused is much more on actually modifying that underlying cause, not providing an additional copy. But within genetic editing, right, in 2011, 2012, right before Jennifer discovered CRISPR, I was sitting there in the lab 
selecting from billions of molecules a single zinc pair that could bind three base pairs. And then doing that again, hooking it up to another one to get six base pairs, finding out that neither of them work when they get hooked up together. And then iterating on that. And it would take three to six months just to build a single pair of zinc fingers that could recognize it a certain location. And you juxtapose that. I mean, that is right. That's before CRISPR, you know, BC, <laughs> BC era technology. It's caveman compared to what, what happened in 2012, where all of a sudden it was a one-to-one -one programmability with DNA that I think immediately was co-opted and really recognized broadly across the field, right? So 2012, Jeanette et al. comes out and demonstrates how to utilize this bacterial immune system. 2013, essentially, everyone was picking up this technology in a single year. And I think this is what's so amazing is about CRISPR is that in a single year, labs around the globe not only got access to it, but had it work repeatedly in their hands. It really speaks to the robustness of what these bacterial immune systems could accomplish in a dish. At that point in time, even in 2013, we were moving beyond just that first generation. And in fact, actually, it was then when I, I and others, you know, other colleagues in Jennifer's lab showed that CRISPR-Cas9 molecules could bind RNA. So now all of a sudden we had the ability to bind DNA and the ability to programmably bind RNA. In 2014, 2015, the whole field had essentially shown that Cas9, CRISPR-Cas9 molecules, and therefore this technology was applicable in every model organism that had been tried in. And then people were starting to move into non-model organisms. So all of a sudden we go from in like less than five years, not being able to predictably, or I guess easily modify the genome in any organism, or excuse me, in any model organism. You'd have folks who wanna knock out something in Drosophila or in C. elegans, and they'd order a pair of zinc fingers from Sigma and it would not work. And we were fielding those requests, right? Working on zinc fingers. To five years later, being able to edit every organism, including non-model organisms, which means that all of a sudden, as Dave was alluding to, you have the ability now to start to interrogate the genome in ways that were not possible. And people started to do so at scale, where you could build a library and test how modifying every underlying genetic modification of a specific locus or of an entire genome modulated some sort of phenotype. So that really, I think, by 2015, 2016, that really percolated pretty broadly in the field of genetic medicine. And it became, and we started to, you know, not only have the ability to modify the genome, but have the ability to utilize these tools really broadly. But once again, labs around the world were, were now doing high-throughput screening using CRISPR systems, interrogating the genome at every site. So then you continue to look at what was possible. And Dave and I, along with Jennifer and a couple other folks, were also exploring new ways to engineer these systems. One way, you know, you can use them to engineer the genome, but then we can really start to think about how we were starting to build in new technologies into them. And I, I think Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but 2014, yeah, 2014, 2015, I think was when we built the first ever allosteric CRISPR molecule, which gives, yeah. gave us the ability to, right? That was, it was 2014, I think. Yeah, that's right. um, yeah, the paper came out a little later, but I mean, we basically laid out, these are the things, if CRISPR is going to work, you want to do, you want to be able to control its activity. You want to mm -hmm. be able to deliver it better and so on. And 
Ben and I just mapped out, you know, what the molecular changes would need to be and how you might refactor, say, Cas9 to do that. Uh, turned out to be a successful PhD for Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's right, right. So 2014, we did that, right? We demonstrated basically every location that you could insert a molecule, a foreign protein domain into Cas9. And we personally used that at that point in time to make allosteric versions, these Cas9 molecules that can be turned on or off based on a small molecule drug. But I mean, what's so amazing about that technology is that today, right, I think Beam just announced, you know, the base editing company just announced that they are submitting their first IND. And that molecule, the molecule that they're using, they essentially inlaid a base editor in the sites that we, you know, Dave and, and Jennifer and I basically predicted in 2014. So the technologies that we laid down back then are still having impacts today in terms of how we think about building better and better CRISPR molecules, which is so interesting. By 2016, 2017, kind of after that, yeah, I think what is so incredible is just how exponential this field has been. At that point in time, we're a rock chip. Everyone around the world is working with CRISPR technology in one way or another. You know, new CRISPR discoveries were showing up. That affirmation-based editing technology was developed right around that time. And we're seeing basically broader traction in the CRISPR field in therapeutics and biotechnology. You're seeing the first generation of CRISPR companies come to the fore and start to talk about their plans for, for getting into the clinic. And since then, we've seen genome editing now in the clinic, whether it's CRISPR or other technologies, come to fruition a number of times in CAR T cell therapies across the board, in hematopoietic stem cell editing technologies, really, once again, across the board with many different genome editing modalities there. And now Intellius data earlier this year in the liver demonstrating, I think, what we all knew was possible, which is that if you can get your CRISPR system into a cell, you know, and this is why ex vivo has been first and, and first and kind of continues to be first. If you can get your CRISPR genome editing system into a cell at a high enough dose, that molecule is actually active you can do amazing things. I mean, the CRISPR vertex data is beautiful when it comes to looking at, it's nothing short of a functional cure for sickle. So it's really exciting times now. I think the concept of modifying the genome has been proven. And now it's a question of how can we do that more effectively, more broadly within the human body? And what are the technologies that are going to be required to enable that? And you touch on our next question, Ben. So let's take that a step further. You've given us a great summation of the state of the field today and the impact CRISPR has had. What are some of the key technologies that, in your vision, we need to develop to enable genetic medicine as we move forward? For us, it's actually a deceptively simple list. So I, I really believe that still we, we need greater efficacy, greater genome editing efficacy, or genetic modification efficacy. And we need significantly enhanced delivery. And those two are not separate technologies, right? Because the challenge of, you know, and one of Scribe's goals is to, to really be able to apply CRISPR genome editing broadly in vivo. And the challenge there is that delivery all of a sudden becomes incredibly important. And the most advanced delivery technologies that we currently have, AAV, for organ systems like the CNS, the eye, the muscle is specifically limits, is limited by how much you can dose, right? AV is dose limited. And LMPs, likewise, they only really go to the liver and that's just what saturates them. So 
if we want to unlock these other organ systems beyond the liver, beyond LMPs, we want more and more, we really need more and more efficient and specific genome editing systems. I think beyond that, we need to be building in new ways to either utilize the delivery technologies that currently exist, like LMPs, like AAV, and really leveling up that technology, enabling it to function at a lower and lower dose, for example, as well as then we also really do need to focus on building new delivery technologies that can give us greater specificity for certain cell types, that can deliver CRISPR systems as potent and short-lived effectors, essentially. And that has to be brought in as well. Yeah, yeah. Happy happy to chime in too. I, I think Ben's totally right. I mean, it's this various delivery technologies and, and building that out is crucial. And I think an interesting question to ponder is, is how we get there. And I think one thing that I've you know, stressed to, to trainees over the years, and I think, I think Ben and I both learned from each other a lot, a lot about this. And it's, it's one thing is deeply embedded inscribed is the importance of the, it oftentimes doesn't get a lot of attention uh, because it's le- it's kind of less interesting. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes a slog mm-hmm. to build, but the, you've probably seen plots before about the exponential increases in, you know, DNA synthesis and sequencing capacity that's, you know, outstripping Moore's law. But you think about how you're going to put that technology to, you know, into play and take advantage of it. You still have to asset. You still have to, to wield that power in a way and learn something from it. And, and so Scribe really thinks about the assay. And I think that's, you know, clever developments there is one way to, to see advances ultimately in things like delivery. If I could just parlay off of that, I think it's a really important point. And it's one that we critically see. When I say CRISPR systems need to be more efficacious, many folks are like, what do you mean? You know, I see Cas9s out there editing at, you know, 100%. But that changes very rapidly, and especially with all of the new technologies that many folks are trying to bring forward. It changes very rapidly the second you get it into a therapeutic context. And you're actually, you are limited. You are in an assay or you're, you have to measure this where you only have one molecule per cell or less, or one copy of that gene per cell. And it's something that I see kind of time and time again is the difference between really academic science and moving more towards the reproducible biotechnology, you know, or biotechnological assets that we need to create. And that is a, a real challenge that, that we're very focused on, on solving. Thanks for tuning in BIOS Community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. That leads us perfectly back into the building of Scribe Therapeutics. At Scribe, Your goal is to engineer biology and fundamentally transform how we diagnose, treat, and manage disease at scale. And to do this, Scribe has been engineering and generating novel CRISPR molecule variants as custom-designed tools for therapeutic use on any given target. Can you gentlemen take us through the founding of Scribe? Yeah. So I think, once again, this kind of comes back to the philosophy we were talking about earlier, right? Scribe was founded and built on this very intentional design philosophy, this 
concept that we could, in fact, engineer the future. We could build the future. I still remember this. I worked, you know, was a joint graduate student between Dave and Jennifer for about three and a half years when I graduated and was fortunate enough to be awarded a position as an entrepreneurial fellow at the Innovative Genomics Institute, which gave me just enough funding actually to start this small fellowship lab of about really two research specialists and myself. And in doing so, it, it was very time limited and we knew that the goal was to build an organization that hopefully could live up to the promise of CRISPR. That's what myself, Dave and Jennifer, as well as Brett Stahl, our fourth co-founder, were really focused on doing is enabling that the promise of what CRISPR technology could be, which truly is treating the underlying cause of disease across the human body, not just in cell therapies, not just in the liver. And I still remember this, this is, you know, it's a very similar to Dave bringing up the story of us sitting down on the couch before that first year of grad school and, and having this mind meld. You know, I think we did the same thing in Dave's office in the Innovative Genomics Institute, actually with Jennifer and sitting around, you know, these offices are these tiny, tiny little things, sitting around this little bistro table, looking at a whiteboard and outlining what were the characteristics that we thought were going to be necessary to enable that, you know, that real promise for CRISPR technology. And looking at that whiteboard and saying, we could engineer this. So that happened, uh, that was 2017. That was early 2017. And that was when I kicked off the Entrepreneurial Fellowship. And, and basically right after that, you know, we worked for a year academically, proving the concepts that we could do so. And we had a real mission to build our own genome editing platform that would solve these solutions more elegantly than I think what has been available in the past. And in 20, late 2018, we, we really operationalized Scribe with our Series A, working very closely with Vijay Pandey at uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Can you tell us more about what Scribe is working on today? What is your CRISPR by design platform and your X-editing technology? CRISPR by design as our engineering platform is really describing the philosophy, our philosophy of intentionally designing the characteristics we want. So as I just mentioned, right, we sat down and we outlined all of these different characteristics, greater specificity at a low dose, excuse me, greater efficacy at a low dose, greater specificity across the board, the ability to target anywhere in the human genome, the ability to be delivered robustly via AAV, basically identifying the libraries of millions of different CRISPR variants based on a single scaffold, if you will. And for us, we've been using a scaffold called CASX, a foundational CRISPR unit called CASX that was discovered by Jennifer and her colleagues, Jill Banfield out of groundwater in groundwater in, in Colorado, actually, an abandoned silver mine, I believe. Um, and taking that scaffold and basically saying, what are the changes that we need to make to these enzymes to enable the characteristics that we want? And this is where the magic is right? Understanding how to identify all those different changes to build those libraries. You then have to go through really some pretty sophisticated molecular biology techniques to then build these libraries of, of thousands or millions of variants. And then going, hearkening back to what Dave was talking about, you have to be able to build the selection assays, the screening and selection assays that allow you to apply an evolutionary pressure 
to then identify which of these mutations of the millions, only a couple, hundred maybe, are going to be really advantageous based on the selective pressure that you apply. And then finally, of course, you have to be able to assay them. And this really gets to exactly what they was laying out. You have to be able to understand when you make a change to an enzyme, how that functions. So our CRISPR by design platform is essentially the amalgamation of all of these things combined. If you do this process enough times, you build a library of a million different things. You select it for, for example, efficacy. You then assay hundreds of variants that come out of that library. You create this really robust repository of assays, know-how, and tech, you know, techniques and methodologies that allows you to do that even quicker, right? And it is a bit of a flywheel. Each time you go around that design, build, test, learn cycle, for a specific type of molecule, you can actually iterate even faster. And that's what CRISPR by design is for us, is it represents this platform that allows us to iterate on CRISPR molecules writ large. So, of course, that's what we do. That's how we enable these technologies. X-editing is just a highly evolved version of CASX. So it's a fancy, it's a fancy way to say this molecule is very different from the original with significantly improved characteristics. I mean that sincerely. This enzyme is over 100 steps in sequence space away from the original wild-type enzyme. So what we have been doing is really selecting this platform to try to create a more AAV deliverable, significantly smaller enzyme that has greater efficacy and greater specificity than any anything currently available today. And we're really excited about where we stand right now and have been applying that really pretty broadly now across uh, a wide variety of organ systems and models. I'd be curious to understand, how do you and your lab interface with Scribe and everything they have going on? Yeah, so, so one of the amazing things is that um, in addition to Ben, there are s several other former students from the lab of the, this sort of cohort that uh, went to Scribe. So actually it's a really enjoyable process for me because I can go and just catch up with, you know, with friends. So I tend to spend uh, some time each week there, you know, catching up on science, you know, advising people, you know, just acting like a sounding board and think about what's going on. One of the things that's really fun for me, and it's really invigorating, is really just to see in a way that's very different than academic science, which tends to be sort of limited in funding with a sort of infinite time, the opposite situation. You have unlimited resources and you're trying to get it, something done as fast as possible and you're focused on a, on a single goal. So it's really fun to see, I would almost say, uh, I'm a little jealous sometimes even, to see the progress that you can make. And you know, it's a translational advance, but, you know, even at the basic science, you, you can do amazing biochemistry and understand the kinds of things that we would love using the kinds of techniques we'd love to do. But, you know, these experiments are, are challenging at, at the academic level. So it's pretty fun to watch that unfold. And, you know, Ben's laughing. Uh, he has I'm a far because, bigger budget than I do. <laughs> I was going to say, Dave, you, uh, you haven't even heard about the new sequencer we're getting. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So when Ben was talking about ex-editing, it's like, you know, you turn this wheel and you iterate this way and you can, you know, you can have the most active and deliverable molecule there is. That is super cool to see as an advisor watching what Ben's done. Uh, it's just very rewarding. Talking about that iteration and diving a little bit deeper I'd love to hear your thoughts on pharmacogenetics and how the therapies Scribe is developing 
will equitably address the breadth and variance of human needs. How are you thinking about these challenges as you build these new platforms? Yeah, I, th I think one thing, Ben, feel free to, to jump in here, but I think one thing that's important, you know, an important advance from Scribe's approach is that when you're able to do this through design and fast iteration, you end up with, you know, ultimately more effective molecules and, and you can do more, you can do more with them. And, and so you change the paradigm from essentially the old drug screening small molecule platform to intentionally making therapies. And so your, you know, your hit rate is far higher. And so you can make things much more accessible that way because you can address many things in parallel. I think that's one thing. The other thing relates back to the conversation on the pandemic. You know, one of the amazing things about now the broader accessibility of mRNA from a very practical standpoint is just that there's a manufacturing capacity for some of these reagents, right? We have billions of dollars in resources and established factories and personnel and expertise at a variety of companies and CROs and other places now that really will help with bringing the, the next round of therapies through, through manufacturing prowess. And I think that's going to be exciting, exciting to see too. And you know, I think from Scribe's point of view, in terms of engineering, you know, we're really excited about sort of dovetailing with, with those advances uh, to bring the next things uh, into the pipeline. Yeah. And I can, you know, jump in there as well. I, I agree with everything just Dave just said. Beyond X editing, the beauty of engineering is that our goal is to build the one-stop shop, for example, for modifying the genome as you need to. Yeah, you know, something I, I grew up hearing is, you know, you gotta use the right tool for the job. My dad would yell at me if I tried to use a flathead to screw in a Phillips screw. And that sort of mentality is something that we bring to everything that we're doing at Scribe. It's super exciting to think about the fact that I don't have to, and we won't in fact try to shoehorn in a technology to suit a problem, but rather we can use a TPP or a, a target product profile for a specific drug and let that dictate what we're gonna engineer for. And then all of the advancements, this is the beauty of CRISPR, all the advancements that we engineer for that TPP go back into the platform and make all of these other TPPs more accessible in, in another engineering rev or, or cycle. So I think our goal is to make a drug for a particular patient population. There is very, very, it's very unlikely you're gonna make a, a drug that addresses, equitably addresses, as you put it, the variance of human needs. That is not a, an outcome that a specific thing can do. But because we are engineering and doing CRISPR by design that allows us to build the, you know, tool after tool after tool that can modify the genome here, that can edit the genome here, that can be delivered to this organ system A versus organ system B, and we can suit up and mat, you know, suitably match these parts to the disease. That's what I'm really excited about. As the, and then as Dave mentioned, this all now becomes more and more possible as the entire field around us continues to develop and adds new parts in, adds new ideas in that we get to all continue to leverage and I think everyone, the, the common turn of phrase, standing on the shoulder of giants, it's something that we all do. And we do it on each, on each other's shoulders in terms of everyone gets to benefit from seeing everyone else succeed because there really is so much possibility out there for modifying disease, truly modifying that underlying cause of disease that we really haven't been able to do to this point. 
it's incredibly exciting to hear your thoughts on really engineering that future of genetic medicine. Let's start to wrap it up by taking a step back and talking about your journeys through academia with Dave at the head of the Savage Lab and Ben having previously led the Oaks Lab. You both have foundations in academia, specifically at UC Berkeley and jointly working with the Dowden Lab focused on CRISPR and protein engineering research. Ben, do you have any advice for early stage startups or for academics who harbor entrepreneurial ambitions? Mm, I have lots of advice. <laughs> well, I would say, seek if you really want to talk about it, find good advisors. I, I think that's probably one of the most important things. And I mean that me personally have been incredibly fortunate to work with Dave and Jennifer who have supported me every step of the way. And I would 100% not be able to be doing what I am without the support of both of those mentors. And that goes, I think, doubly so if you want to pursue what I think five years ago would have been called a non-traditional path, but today is actually probably becoming more and more traditional. And Dave, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that, but it does seem like there are many more folks in academia who are, who are more willing to entertain and support and really mentor their students to taking paths into biotechnology and entrepreneurship and consulting and the like. Um, but for me personally, it was incredibly, it was incredibly important. It was critical. It was enabling, right? To be able to work with the likes of Dave and Jennifer to support me in that mission. It's great to hear that you found such a great team and I'm sure our listeners will be encouraged to as well. Dave, on your end, what would you recommend to current and future PhDs who are eager to one day found their own academic labs? Yeah, that's that is a tough question. You know, it's something I've I, I have been a PI now for about ten years, and it's interesting to see as I, you know I've had about ten students graduate now. Some come in a way almost fully formed, uh, like like Ben, and others require a little more nurturing. I've always tried to tailor. Uh, the, the training approach to each individual student, but, but there are definitely a couple of themes that I have tried to, to get across. One of the one of the things that you know, and these both actually you know really takes development. It takes a lot of work. Is that one thing I've tried to instill in people is to do things in a creative fashion, and we oftentimes think that you know, creativity comes from inspiration, but I think, which can certainly be true, comes out of, you know, thin air, but really creativity comes out of the fact that you are diversely read, you, you know the literature very well, and you can apply something from one area into another. And a lot of our projects and a lot of the things that I try to instill in people is trying to make those connections across broad parts of the literature to bring you know something new into existence, and of course that's super important as you go on to, to start your own lab. The other thing that I really try to stress, and it's really important for what Ben just said in terms of new trainees, particularly now more than ever, that, that want to, to take an entrepreneurial path or even you know in your own academic path, is you, you have to develop a sense of agency. You you have to understand that it ultimately you know is your responsibility and you have to take things under control for yourself. That's something that starts in early days as a graduate student, as, as you begin to assume control of your project, 
something that can be learned and taught as you sort of inch your way for starting on a simpler project and, and ultimately hopefully, you know, expand that into something much larger, perhaps more high risk, high reward, but students have to have that agency. And if you, as you go into either starting your own, you know, company or run an academic lab, it's interesting because we don't get trained in, in that in many ways, you know, <laughs> it's like running an academic lab is running a small business, you know, in the same way that Ben's running a, was running a small business. Now it's running a much uh, sort of a much larger small business. Nobody trains you for that. It's crazy that we don't do that in the current state of the world. You have to learn that on the fly. And there's this very elaborate selective selection process for faculty, but some of the most basic things are not encouraged or selected for. Uh, Ben's chuckling there because because it's totally true. It, you, it's like just a hundred percent, totally, yeah, totally crazy. Uh, and I think actually, you know, for both of us, perhaps one reason we realized that I know Ben's parents, you know, were both in various industry and, and business and small business, and my parents were both doing that too. So I think I, you know, I grew up with that as part of that sort of hustle was part of the way that I was raised. But certainly, I didn't get it in my PhD training, which is really sad. So definitely try to give that sense to people. Yeah, I mean, if I can just jump in there because Dave sparked some some real good thoughts. The pragmatic advice, I am a different person for sure because I took two years to be a technician engineering zinc nucleases. There's a lot of reasons for that in terms of what the effects that had. I don't know that I agree with Dave that I am a fully formed individual. I think there's still quite a bit missing. But I will say that that technicianship working on zinc nucleases, 90 hours a week in the lab, really thinking about all the different ways that we could do this better because it was visceral for me was, was really powerful. And I think that with, once again, has to be with the right mentors, right? And I had a fantastic mentor in Marcus Noyes during that technicianship. That can be a really powerful experience that helps in many ways. And I think did give me personally, a real advantage when I came into grad school already knowing exactly what I wanted to do, because I had the two years to basically read and learn, and then ultimately get smacked upside the head by a new technology that obviated everything that I was doing. Not really, but in, in many ways it did. And that was a real learning and growth time for me. And so if someone is interested in going into, I think maybe academia or going into biotech entrepreneurship, and you're in college, I, I don't think that the right answer is to jump. I don't think the right answer has to be to jump right into grad school. I think that pragmatically really seeing a bit more of the world, whether it's being deep in the lab or it's going to do a different position, it may be exploring things more strategically, whether it's consulting or, or just getting that broader sense of what else is out there and what real work looks like can be really powerful. And I would... And I do to this day, and, and you know, many of my mentees know this as well, I, I do recommend it. I think it's a really valuable set of experiences to do before grad school. Fantastic. And thank you both once again for joining us. It's been a fun and lively conversation. Before we come to a close here, a few rapid fire questions to cap things off. Zooming out from genetic engineering for a second here, if we can take a broader lens of the field, what would you say are the grand challenges facing us in life sciences over the next 30 years, Ben? I 
think it's exactly what Dave laid out earlier. It's truly understanding that you're not just sequencing it, but knowing how it works and how it relates to the phenotype. And Dave, zooming ahead now to biotech in 2050, as Ben said, with the understanding of the genome we'll have by then, can you describe the state of genomics in 2050? Where will we be? I think we'll have the genetic medicines, you know, fully brought to fruition that we've talked about today. I would also, you know, think even taking one step farther, uh, as we've, we've talked about the, the broad use of, of CRISPR technology and, and life sciences in the future, I mean, I think we'll also see addressing other challenges such as you know, climate change and other environmental problems in the same way of, of harnessing other genomes. It won't just be the, the human genome too. There'll be other things uh, such as being able to fix carbon more, more effectively. I, and I just saw a super cool paper on enzymatic synthesis of starches. Yeah, somebody, <laughs> somebody completely refactored that enzyme pathway and purified all the enzymes to fix starch. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, from yeah. CO2. Yeah, yeah exactly. Really Directly cool. from CO2. We, we did it as a journal club. Yeah, it was great. And to build off of that, Ben, can you share with us where will Scribe Therapeutics be in 2050? Yeah, that's a good one. 30 years from now. That's like a good amount of time. Usually I ask five years, 10 years is what I get asked. 2050, look at, I think the goal is for us to have every technology you can imagine for modifying the genome in a way you need to, right? So whether it's modifying the genome, the modifying the epigenome, changing bases, inserting DNA, and then beyond that, having the ability to deliver to whatever cell type you need to, that would be my mission. 30 years from now. If we can do that, I think essentially have at your fingertips the ability to reprogram the genome with the understanding that we were just talking about. I can't actually fathom effectively how impactful that could be. And to help add some closing thoughts to this fantastic conversation today, Ben and Dave, anything you'd like to share with us? The thing I would say is that we're always looking for uh, really fantastic folks who kind of share these visions, this vision or, you know, this mission of engineering biology. And if you in any way want to be a part of that, please reach out. We're constantly growing and, and looking for new ways to expand our own team, right? We, we, we think a lot about community here and that's something that I love to build. So. And Ben, how can uh, our audience learn more about Scribe and get in touch? With so go to the website, Seek me out on LinkedIn or Twitter. Either of those places would be my recommendation. Thank you. And, and Dave, some questions to you? Yep. We're, we're at savagelab.org on the web, and we have an active student-led Twitter feed at Savage Cats only. If people want to learn more about some of the science, always available at the email to savage at berkeley.edu. Perfect. Well, thank you again both for an amazing episode here. We're really grateful for your time. Appreciate you joining us once again and looking forward to future collaborations here. Thanks, folks. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. 
we help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.